This is the Week in Addiction Medicine, a podcast resource of timely news and top stories brought to you by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Welcome to This Week in Addiction Medicine for September 12th, 2023. Our lead story comes to us from JAMA, the prevalence of cannabis use disorder and reasons for use among adults in the United States where recreational cannabis use is legal. This cross-sectional study investigated the prevalence of cannabis use disorder among primary care patients in states with legal recreational cannabis. Patients were asked to report medical use, non-medical use, or both, with 42.4% reporting medical use only, 25.1% non-medical use, and 32.5% reporting both. The prevalence of CUD was 21.3 for moderate to severe CUD prevalence was 6.5 overall, with 1.3 reporting medical use, 7.2% non-medical use, and 7.5 reporting both. Those reporting medical use only tended to be older, female, and retired. Those reporting non-medical use, or both, were more likely to disclose withdrawal, use in hazardous situations, use despite persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems, important social, occupational, or recreational activities, given up to, reduced, and use despite persistent, recurrent social or interpersonal problems. Hence, screening for CUD among patients who use cannabis is paramount. Our next story comes to us for PNAS. Synaptic and cellular endocannabinoid signaling mechanisms regulate stress-induced plasticity of nucleus accumbens and accumbin somatostatin neurons. This study shows that endogenous cannabinoids regulate the balance of excitatory drive to the nucleus incubens in mice and are required for stress to shift excitatory drive to this key reward center. These cannabinoid-mediated shifts in the balance of excitatory drive could reveal how stress affects the motivational process and provide insight into the neural basis of cannabis reward. Our next story comes to us from Psychiatric Research and Clinical Practice. Entitled, Validation for Two Diagnostic Assessments for Opioid and Stimulant Use Disorder, for use by non-clinicians. This cross-sectional study tested the validity of two DSM-5 diagnostic assessment tools for opioid use disorder and stimulant use disorder by non-clinicians. The study updates the rapid opioid dependent screen to opioid use disorder assessment and includes fentanyl. The rapid stimulant use disorder assessment was also tested The rapid opioid use disorder assessment demonstrated a sensitivity of 82.5% and a specificity of 100%. Likewise, the rapid stimulant use disorder assessment demonstrated similarly high sensitivity. Non-clinician diagnosis of these disorders affords an opportunity for rapid education, treatment, and implementation of harm reduction measures in community settings. Our next story comes to us from the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, entitled, Fentanyl Concentration in Drug Checking Samples and Risk of Overdose Death in Vancouver, Canada. 
Fentanyl and its analogs are the known major drivers of the opioid overdose epidemic in the last few years, and in response to the community, drug checking services have expanded, which allow persons who use drugs to test their supply. These program tests for the presence and concentration of fentanyl. Using the fentanyl concentration data from these services in Vancouver, Canada, the authors found a strong association between median monthly fentanyl concentration and illicit drug toxicity deaths between January 2019 and October 2020. There was a notable increase in both fentanyl concentration and the overdose death rate starting in March 2020. The authors suggest that the data from these types of services can be used as a tool to monitor evolving drug supply and fentanyl concentrations, which can inform real-time public health responses. Our next study comes from Drug and Alcohol Dependence, entitled Racial Inequities in Addiction Research. There is a significant need for research on the racial and ethnic inequities for substance use disorders, but there's also disparities present among those who conduct the research. The authors describe some of the efforts by NIDA to address the disparities among researchers, citing several programs including Diversity Scholars Network, Summer Research Internship Programs, diversity supplement awards, and other funding opportunities. While some progress has been made in the demographic trends and funding over the last decade, the absolute number of applicants among racial and ethnic minorities remains low. One significant barrier may be relatively low salaries for postdoctoral positions that may prevent persons from lower social economic backgrounds from entering research careers. The author suggests grantee institutions could offer additional support to address this barrier. Our next study comes from Neuropsychopharmacology, entitled Epigenetic Alterations Identify a Confluence of Genetic Vulnerabilities Tied to Opioid Overdose. Neurons were obtained from the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex of 51 opioid overdose cases and 51 sudden death controls and studied for epigenetic changes. While the specific epigenetic changes varied in the overdose cases, they all converged on five genes known to be linked to OUD. The authors state that these studies increase understanding of the role of genetic influence in opioid overdose. Next, a study from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, entitled Preliminary Evidence of the Association Between Time on Buprenorphine a Cognitive Performance Among Individuals with Opioid Use Disorder Maintained on Buprenorphine, a pilot study. Participants had been on buprenorphine maintenance treatment, BMT, for at least 30 days and had used an illicit drug in the past 30 days and were compared to matched healthy controls. The cognitive tests assess response inhibition and attention by showing participants words, colors, and letters on a screen and asking participants to respond when specific patterns appeared. The BMT participants had more errors and slower reaction times than the controls. The BMT participants had an average of 315 days on buprenorphine, and the length of time on buprenorphine was associated with fewer errors and faster reaction times. There was no correlation between illicit drug use or cravings and errors or reaction time. Our final article this week comes to us from Translational Psychiatry, entitled Enolylglycine and Enolyl Aniline 
attenuate alcohol self-administration and preference in mice. It is hypothesized that drug-induced elevation of endocannabinoids and or the ECB-like molecules may represent a protective mechanism against the drug insult and boosting their levels exogenously may strengthen the neuroprotective effects. This study determined the involvement of ECS in alcohol addiction. Systemic administration of enolyl glycine or enolyl aniline during intermittent alcohol consumption significantly reduced alcohol intake and preference without affecting the hedonic state. These findings suggest that the endocannabinoid system negatively regulates alcohol consumption and boosting selective ECBs exogenously has beneficial effects against alcohol consumption and potentially in preventing relapse. This concludes today's episode of This Week in Addiction Medicine. Remember to subscribe to the ASAM Weekly for more exclusive content and an editor's commentary, delivered every Tuesday. Be sure to check us out on social media and at asam.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.